The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. This is Glenn Lowry. You have tuned in to The Glenn Show, Glenn Show at Substack.com, sponsored by the Manhattan Institute. Every other week, conversation with John McWhorter, Columbia University professor. I teach at Brown University and am the John Paulson Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. We are back, John. How you doing, man? I'm good. How are you? I'm feeling pretty good right now. I'm not sure exactly why. Working hard on the memoir, John. Working hard on the memoir. Enough said. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> but oh, we. From the end. Oh man. We're in. Uh, you know that psalm, "The Valley of the Shadow of Death." Yea, though I walk through the Valley of the Shadow of Death. <laughs> <laughs> So, I don't know, you know, we could talk about this book, you know, if you really want to, but I somehow don't think I should. Why? Uh, It's like, I don't know. I'll ask you this. Yeah. Yeah. I may have to eat my words because now everything that I say about this sort of thing is recorded. But I don't think I'm going to be doing a memoir. Or if I do, I'm going to do it when I'm 90. Okay, John is gone. He'll be back. We're going to carry on with this. John's coming back right now. Yeah. Glenn, I'm going to move. When this happens often, I have to move to a different part of the house. It might be my end. Hold on. Okay, just carry your computer with you. We'll we'll carry on right here, John. And memoir, I don't really want to talk about it, everybody. This is my time for a soliloquy. I can do a soliloquy while John is moving. I really don't want to talk about it. When I say the valley of the shadow of death, I mean the valley of the shadow of death, you know. So, and, and I'm not doing it to summarize something. I mean, I, this is a literary undertaking, John. It's art. It's not a report. I'm not reporting. You know, it's the meaning of life. That's what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with the essence of things. So why not? I mean, why, why not? Do you not think you have something profound to say about living? Okay, John is settling in. There's a little instability. Can you see me? So, Glenn, I'm going to leave and come back. Yeah, you should leave and come back. He's refreshing right now. It's not a report. That was one point. Self-knowledge. Self-honesty. I mean, even if I wanted to lie to you, I have to be clear with myself about what actually happened so I don't know what I'm lying about. <laughs> and believe me, self-understanding uh, is an achievement. It's not given. Uh, you have to clear away a lot of uh, you know, obstruction and a lot of delusion and aggrandizement, self-aggrandizement, self-delusion, a lot of lies. Yeah, so one of the motifs in the memoir is the distinction between the cover story and the real story. 
And everybody has got a cover story. You know, you've got a prettified narrative that you tell yourself about what has actually happened to you, about your failures, or, uh, about your flaws. You have excuses, rationalizations, you know. Um, and the real story. Wait, John's back. And you know what the real story is? The, the, never a dull moment at the Glenn show. It's either Glenn and John or it's just Glenn. I just feel like if I wrote a if if I wrote a memoir, every second reader would be thinking of it as black man writes about what it was like being a post-civil rights black person. And I don't want people to read my life. And even the people who would love read it would be thinking. So, so don't you don't you worry about that a little bit? Yeah, man. I, I hear what you're saying. You're giving them red meat. You're you're um, setting yourself up for a certain kind of, uh, uh, you know, cheap takedown. Everybody is going to impute motives to you. You know, I, I, I see what you say about that. Yeah, I do worry about that. Are you there? Did you hear what I said? Yeah, we got connection problems with John McWhorter. Uh, but I know that I'm being recorded, and I think there's something of value here just in this reflection at this moment. I mean, John makes a good point. He imagines how it's going to be read. He anticipates the reviews that will be written by the usual suspects. And the carping, that was the word I was looking for, the carping. You know, the kind of little, small, yeah, look at this little, yeah. And in my case, given the... Uh, what it meant for me to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I mean, the way I was living, the things I was doing, the life I was leading, the double life I was leading, uh, the depths of, you know, depravity. And... <sighs> Exposing that, yeah, making that public, confessing it. There are some um, obvious points. Uh, the point I like to make, makes me look clever is, <laughs> The irony of the fact that if you're writing an account of your own life and you anticipate that the readers are going to form opinions about you based upon what they see, you have an incentive to misrepresent. They have a necessity of being on guard against, as readers, as uh, thoughtful readers, of being on guard against the likelihood of your misrepresentation. And so a very interesting game is being played. This fits right into the template that the economic theorist would naturally adopt, you know, the sender, that's me, the writer, and the receiver. That's you, the reader. Me having private information about my life, I know the actual facts and 
even more than the facts. I know the interior thoughts that I held as I experienced those facts. So the sender has private information and you, the reader, the receiver, is trying in a way to decipher. You, you see what I present and then you're trying to infer from that what you're going to actually think about me. So that's a nice game. Two players, asymmetric information, signaling, and reading between the lines. That's, that's that game. And the irony is that if I want as the sender to be able to have an impact on what you think about me, that is to be a credible influencer, then I have to earn that status in the nature of the case is not something that could be taken for granted. How does a writer earn the reader's trust when the writer is reporting about himself? I think the only way to do that is by disclosing discrediting information. The writer has to put the funk on it. He's got to put the blood on it, the guts. Uh, it has to somehow shock and revolt uh, the, the reader. John is back. I have restarted. Okay, you've done bet. You've done well. You've done well, and you have afforded me an opportunity to wax philosophical about the game of writing about one's own life. Because what I was going to say to you, John, is, yeah, man, I, I feel you when you say I don't want to set myself up for these small-minded, uh, you know, ideological haters to carp and pick at me, which is what they're going to do. They're not interested in actually a literary experience. They're just looking for ammunition. And, mm -hmm. you know, they hate your guts, and now you put your guts on the line. Mm -hmm. So now they, they're just going to write you off. They're just going to say, oh, yeah, you know, they're going to they're gonna do a Clarence Thomas on you. That's what they're going to do. In other words, mm -hmm. Clarence Thomas writes uh, my grandfather's son, his memoir, and Clarence Thomas's life is exemplary. I mean, come on. You can easily make a movie about Clarence Thomas's life. Easily. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he comes up speaking a different language and the poverty thing on the thing and he goes through the thing he goes through and it, you know, I'm not asking for an evaluation of Clarence Thomas I'm just saying that's what they're going to do to you because the reception of Clarence Thomas I know you've seen Corey Robbins book oh in fact didn't you extol it in a, in a piece that you yeah anyway and I don't much like the book and I you know we could talk about it but I don't want to talk about it <laughs> but I do want to mm -hmm. talk about memoir writing and I want to talk about your, your concern. And you ask me, don't I feel that same concern? That concern that, that the response will be, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, it'll be small and impersonally picky and petty. And, you know, and, and like I, you've said, you give them the ammunition, you, you know, you write about yourself and then they can take your own words and use it against you. Uh, and, you know, 
I think that's true. And I was going on in my monologue to reflect on, you know, how a, a social analyst might think about the problem because you're self-reporting. You know, the writer is writing about the writer's own life. And you anticipate an audience and the audience is taking the text of what you present to them and then drawing a response, making an inference from the text. You control the text. They are going to be the are uh, the authors of their reaction to the text. And so there's a manipulation issue. I mean, there's what do you put in the text? And what I was saying was, if you want as a writer to have credibility with the reader, mm -hmm. you have to earn that credibility. If you want to be able to influence what they think about you by what you write, and let, let's say that's the purpose of writing a memoir, you want to leave a record that the uh, reader of it will come to certain conclusions about you and your time and your life that are favorable from your point of view, then you have to earn the credibility of the reader. And the only way really to earn the credibility of the reader is self-discrediting disclosure. Mm -hmm. You have to say things that are ugly about yourself in order to persuade the reader that you should be taken seriously when you say anything else about yourself. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this is a high wire act, man. This is this is walking out there where a wrong step and it's all the way down kind of thing like that. You know, and I'm not sure how much of this got through because of my technical difficulties, but I hear you completely. And I want to make it clear that for me, it's partly that you're sitting there putting your heart and soul into something. And then there's going to be a kind of person who sits there and hate reads it and, you know, willfully misunderstands, can't see you as anything but this monster. To me, that's about 20% of it, though. It's also somebody who would read it favorably. But the way I'm seeing it is that unless, you know, by some chance I discover the cure for cancer or something within my decades left, the reason somebody would want my memoir was because of my blackness. It wouldn't be because of anything else about me. And so even a positive reader would be thinking, what was his life like as a post-civil rights black person? What was his life like as somebody who stumbled into a career as a contrarian commentator, et cetera? I like McWhorter. I want to read about, you know, McWhorter's <laughs> blackness, you know, as he straddled the two centuries. And I get it. I completely get it. But anybody who read my memoir and got that out of it would have something other than what it has felt like to walk around in my own head, where... What my public face is, is disproportionately about race, and it's a duty, and I'm going to keep doing it, because frankly, there aren't enough of us. We have to do this. We owe Black people this, although so many of them will never understand it. But <laughs> we're doing this for our people. But, you know, during most of life, you know, I'm just, God knows what else I'm doing, and I don't think anybody would find it very interesting, and they would just have this sense of me as, and you may feel differently, and I would just feel like it was a subtraction, and people wouldn't be getting what it was like to be the actual me. Like I'm looking around this, this study right now. There's a Hirschfeld print of 70s TV over <laughs> on this wall because I like 70s TV. Now, one of the people he caricatures is Red Fox as Fred Sanford, but most of those people are white. I didn't get it because of Fred Sanford. There is a poster of, it's from when I went to Paris and there was a bank that had posters where they were using stills from Tex Avery cartoons, like with Droopy 
and stuff like that. And so it's this poster in French about banks. I don't think I'd know what these words meant even in English. It's about, you know, interest rates, et cetera. But it's got droopy from the Tex Avery. So I actually dragged that from Paris about 30 years ago. Over my computer is my favorite peanut strip. Peanuts is a very white strip. There are black things in this room, but this room is full of what is me. There's a map of Africa that I, I drew when I was nine years old. Okay, that's fine. But then I also have a print of an Angra painting back there. I'm a lot of things, just like all people are a lot of things. I'm not trying to show off how eclectic I am. All people are a lot of things. And if I wrote a memoir, all anybody would want to know was what it was like to write as a black person and to be contrarian, what it was like to deal with subtle racism rather than overt racism when I was in summer camp when I was 15. It's not enough. And I just, I wouldn't oh, want to do it. You know, I, I think you're selling your readers short. I think your life is, you and your life would be of great interest. And, and I think many people, and, and particularly if you, given your um, mastery of, of the writing craft and the, you know, interesting style, I think that you uh, bring uh, to your prose, I, I, you know, I think it would be, you know, I'm not, I don't have a dog in this fight. You can write or not write. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to persuade you of anything, but, but I do think uh, that if you were to produce such a work, uh, it would be of lasting value and it would be appreciated. Yes, you would be seen as a black man. I mean, that's not insignificant to who no, you no. actually are. I mean, given that you said you, you talk about my people, you say what we do is important. You're defending the idea of doing it. And I, I want to come back to that later because I had this interesting conversation with Shelby Steele and Robert Woodson and Camille Foster that I want to talk to you about. But, but yeah, uh, this uh, typical reader that you envision who might be drawn to your book and who will be drawn to mine uh, will come with this curiosity driven through the filter of seeing you in that particular role as a African, controversial African-American intellectual and mm -hmm. not seeing your, you know, I mean, I, I like that tour. I like that tour of your interior there uh, in your office <laughs> or whatever it is. I, I carried the laptop around. Yeah. I'm not at all surprised to learn that you're a cosmopolitan individual of a kind of sophisticated, refined but sensibility. I know that's not what you were trying to say. I know you weren't bragging. No. You're no, just saying this is you. And and I agree. I mean, I feel that way all the time, man, because if, if I may, just for a moment, you know, I've lectured at the London School of Economics. I've lectured at the Delhi School of Economics. I've been, I've been lectured in Korea and, you know, and... Ghana and South Africa and, you know, I mean, I, you know, I'm a, I, I mean, if I say it, it'll sound so self-aggrandizement, but I'm a lot more than a black conservative writing at Substack and disagreeing with uh, Michael Eric Dyson or some of these Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, way, way, way more. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and that's why, and I know you share this with me. I take umbrage at the lionization of lightweight, empty-suited, empty-headed motherfuckers like Ibram X. Kid. <laughs> <laughs> who couldn't carry my book bag. Who hasn't, who, who hasn't read... No, no, I'm sorry. He hasn't read a fucking thing. If you ask him what Nietzsche said, he would have no idea. 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He's an unserious, superficial, empty-suited, lightweight. He's not our equal, not even close. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm I I can't join you. <laughs> you made me do it, John. You made me do it. <laughs> oh God. Oh, I will say this. Glenn, it's gonna happen to you and it would happen to me. We would write a memoir. You're gonna write a memoir. And you're gonna go to something called a bookstore if it still exists. <laughs> and you know where they're gonna put it? They're gonna put it in African American issues. Like <laughs> As if that's all that you are. I've seen some of my books put in the black section that weren't even about race, just because my name is mine. And that's, that's the way it would be. And even, you know, on websites, black books. And that's where they're going to put you. And that's where they would put me, you know, as if that, that sums up our entire existence. And maybe I'm making too much of that. I think you are. But I, I'm I'm yeah. feeling liberated, man. I mean, that little rant that I just went on, I, <laughs> I apologize to those who are offended by my dismissive reaction of the great Ibram X. Kennedy. I apologize. I did not, I did not mean to offend you. I got carried away. But, but I really like where we are, Glenn, actually. I, I, I feel like not. we're going to win, John. I think we're going to win. I think history is on our side, really. I mean, I, I think I think this is such a bad equilibrium. That's how economists think, okay? It's, we're in a box here, socially, mm -hmm. intellectually, in terms of the political, public reflection, the large conversation about the issue that we care about so deeply, which is race. But it's not only race. It's not only race. I mean, we're, you know, kind of free speech, intellectual integrity, honesty in the public discourse and stuff like that. And don't patronize. I mean, you and I both have the same thing. I mean, don't, don't patronize me. This is what you're saying right now. Don't put me in the black book section when I'm not just a black book. Don't patronize me. I mean, I think we're going to win that argument. They're so far off. I mean, they're, you know, again, empty suits get paraded around as if they're real, you know, it's called paper mache. It's the emperor who has no clothes. I agree. You know, and we could I go down the list of things. Yeah. This affirmative action case, uh, come, this is going to come to a head now because the court is going to hear oral argument, I think, on Monday, uh, just a couple of days from now. And then there, there's going to be a decision handed down at the end of the term in the, uh, May or June next year. Mm -hmm. This is fundamental. Yeah. I mean, you, you can remember how the Baki case and the, you know, and all of that, and then the, the, uh, the challenges to affirmative action that came up to the Supreme Court and the early aughts, uh, it, it's like we're going to finally work this out. The court is very conservative, and they're going to do something very significant in terms of the jurisprudential foundation of uh, racial discrimination by public agents and interpretation of civil rights of 1964, which may extend to, to private. Uh, you know, anyway, it's coming to a head. There's an election coming. I, I don't know if you want to talk about the election. Uh, I'm not a prognosticator, but it seemed pretty obvious that the wind is blowing uh, it, at the Republicans' back, and it's going to be a kind of sweeping thing. The, the Biden administration, the, the whole, the, that 2020 election, and you know now the aftermath of that, uh, I, you know, and it's so partisan, it's so intense. And I know we disagree about a lot of the politics, but I'm just saying, I think we are winning in terms of the 
intellectual uh, arguments that we're having over the race question. And, and I feel optimistic about it. I agree. I think um, you have to sometimes know what era you're in. And, um, you know, people talk about, well, the golden age of television was the 50s. No, the golden age of television is right now. We're living through it in terms of television having a 200-year history. This, this is it. In the same way, you look back and you notice that the golden age of classic black conservatism was the 90s. I doubt if any of you were thinking about that then, but if you look back and you see that it kind of hit the skids around 2003 with the affirmative action decision then, which unfortunately was right around when I was starting. I noticed all of a sudden in 2003, all anybody wanted to talk about was whether hip hop is good or bad. The reason that was the big thing until Katrina and Obama is because there was nothing left to talk about. And so now this is the golden age of black quote unquote heterodoxy. And I think it started partly because of technology, such as what we're using right now, Definitely. partly because of chance confluence of people, such as finally there being a kid who does this. Coleman is, is part of it. Finally, somebody who's, you know, in their 20s who adopts this line and isn't afraid. And so you can't say that it's just a bunch of, you know, older people. And then also um, it's the racial reckoning in early 2020 where so much foolishness was being put forth that there was something that we needed to push back against. And I think that it's at the point, based on everything that you just said, I think that there is definitely um, the emperor has no clothes out there. I can see that looking at how things were three years ago versus how things are now. And I think that um, the only issue at this point is not whether or not a critical mass of people understand where we're coming from, but whether they have the bravery to act on it, I think we still have to wait to see a little bit more of the Spartacus. That's the issue. It's clear what people think. It's just whether they're going to act on it, whether academia specifically is just lost, but then thinking about the rest of the world, you know, most of the world is not academia. But yeah, there's, there's been a major pushback. We've been part of it. I do not feel like we're losing. I don't think we have a small coterie of fanatics behind us. I think that we're, we're hitting a middle ground. Yeah. I feel good about that at this point. Well, the American Council of Trustees and Alumni who gave you the Philip Merrill Award for Outstanding Contributions to Liberal Arts Education recently is not a lightweight paper uh, mache organization. We, mm -hmm. we were at the gala. You saw that the ballroom was full of people. I was with the conference all day long. It was a very distinguished uh, ensemble and it's very well-funded and well-staffed, and there is a very enthusiastic, private, philanthropic, foundational support for it, concerned about free speech and open inquiry and viewpoint diversity in higher education. Now, you can call them conservative if you want to, but they're not about conservatism. They're, they're about the fight for the integrity of, of the uh, higher educational institutions and about empowering alumni and trustees to be able to effectively advocate for open discourse and don't cancel speakers and don't let the inmates run the asylum leadership in American higher education. There's push. That's real solid on the ground pushback. Yep. So, you know, my bluffing metaphor, I say they're bluffing when, you know, I, I don't want to draw you into uh, conflictual territory, but the crime on the city, the, the, the failure 
of the justice reform reaction against the overshooting of mass incarceration. I wrote a whole book about the mass incarceration thing. They overshot. They, there was way too many people in prison. It was way too punitive. It was way too mean and, and, and whatnot. And maybe in some aspects still is. But this reaction against and the justice DAs and the suspension of, you know, the uh, retreat from how did New York become a livable city? Giuliani has something to do with that. Bratton and Kelly has something to do with that. Mm-hmm. Really? You yeah. go from 2,400 murders a year to 400 murders a year? Mm-hmm. So now we're pushing back against that. Now, now the thing has swung the other way. And uh, the consequences are thousands and tens of thousands of bodies, man. Mm-hmm. So uh, not letting people speak on a campus, that, that could not possibly be an equilibrium. That's a bluff. That, that's mm-hmm. an that's a excessive... Uh, over, uh, you know, embrace of a kind of relativism and a kind of, as you have pointed out, power that, you know, power, who has it and how did it, the inequalities of power has to be the, you know, everything. I don't think it holds. I I, I think you can't have it. Uh, otherwise, you know, it's everything uh, goes down the drain. I mean, you you lose the very fiber. I mean, that's... You can't keep these Asian kids with high scores out of the elite uh, colleges based on some the, the test is biased or or we have to have equity i mean i i don't think it holds i think it's i think you know the uh family the the social uh disorganization and whatnot i mean you know it's, uh i stopped because uh <laughs> I, I don't want to dig too big of a hole for myself, but I think the whole thing is a house of cards. You know, I think yeah. the, the bias narrative, progressive structural racism, uh, white guilt uh, thing, mm-hmm. I think it'll be blown away. And I think the only question is whether or not it goes away in a kind of reactionary, neo-fascistic, excessive uh, stomping out with state legislatures passing laws that really they oughtn't to pass about uh, telling teachers what they can teach in schools and with anti-anti stuff uh, getting really, really ugly and the, the uh, uh, kind of tacit restraint. You know, no one will say the N-word. No one will say the N-word. But black crime is certainly something you could imagine one day actually being talked about. So yeah. I think it, the only question is whether it goes like that or whether there's a kind of more soft landing kind of uh, retreat. But um, I think there's going to be. Yeah. yeah, it's going to be both. I think of the Manhattan Institute, which I worked for for the better part of 10 years and proudly. And with which I am last, proudly associated. And the last year of it for me was 2010. For those out there who for some reason are still saying he works for the Manhattan Institute. But I did. And they were great years in many ways, but turning intellect into influence, it happens slowly. And you make me think, Glenn, about ACTA. And I don't, I'm not into, you know, tooting my own trumpet. Yes, I was the awardee, but what was interesting, and thank you, ACTA, but sincerely, thank you, ACTA, because it's very rare that anybody gives me a prize of any kind. It was very flattering. But 
The thing is, you think about the room, you know, the white wine, the room, the milling around, and, you know, you and I are there. That's a different room from where you and I usually were about 20 years ago. And so I imagine that same event, the same wine, the same kind of building, and I'm there in my 30s. And there are many people in that room who are just like at ACTA, centrist, sensible people who just understand what excess is, who can tell the difference between liberalism and radicalism when it comes to race. And this is people of various, various races. 20 years ago, the room that I was most welcome in was one where there were some people like that. But then, without a doubt, I'm not even going to pretend. There's some people milling around who are, you know, obsessed with getting the Clintons and, you know, are proto-election fraud obsessives. Not bad human beings, but that's what they do. There are some people there who just want to talk to you at great length about what a serious problem Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton are. They're mad about that. There'll be somebody who takes you into the corner and says that black people would be better off no longer giving their kids um, fancy, flowery, African-sounding names. If those names get discriminated against in employment, then how come you give those people the names at all? The point being, yes. I'm in a room with people where basically it's a room full of, of card-carrying conservative Republicans. Many of the people in that room's views are not ones that I share, and I can make it politely clear. But that is the room where because there's an overlap, kind of a Venn diagram between my interests and theirs, that's the room that I'm most welcome in. And I'm giving the Riston lecture. I did that once. That's, that's good. But there's a difference between that room where somebody like you or somebody like me has to think the overlap is only partial. And then ACTA, where you're really dealing with a very different crowd. Many of those people who maybe 20 years ago, if they knew who you are, thought of you as a rock-ribbed conservative right-wing Republican. I remember being in those rooms where people were genuflecting. You know, there's an amen chord in the air whenever Ronald Reagan's name comes up. And you just, you make do. I liked prisoner reentry reform. I was interested in that. I was interested in making schools better for black kids. And the Manhattan Institute was really interested in that. But you had to deal with a little bit of static. Much okay. less. A, a walk down the memory lane. You, you are getting to a point, are you not, John? I am, actually. It's been, I've been doing this for over 20 years. So I have memories and the world has changed. But yeah, in the after room, you're thinking, wow, this is mainstream. Conservative, yeah. But there are very few people in this room where I would starkly disagree with some basic tenet of theirs. And then, of course, yes, some people are thinking the New York Times. 20 years ago, the New York Times has never shunned me completely. I've had editorials in it now and then. They have reviewed, I think, six of my books. I have reviewed about six books for them. I've never been shunned by the New York Times, but let's face it. The chance of me writing regularly for them in 2005 or even 2010 would have been yeah. slim. Things have changed. I, I really like the way things are, are going. So yeah, things are different. Hi, this is Glenn Lowry. I'm here to tell you about Policy Genius. I'm a man in my 70s. I know I don't look it, but there you are. My wife, my lovely wife, is in her 50s. I need life insurance. It's very important to give her the security that she deserves. We all hope we'll never need life insurance, of course, but mortgage payments, childcare, and other expenses don't disappear when we're gone. Life insurance through your workplace may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it won't follow you if you leave your job. Since life insurance typically gets more expensive as we age, now's the time to buy. 
Policy Genius gives you a smarter way to find and buy the right coverage for you and your family. I had term life insurance at my job until I entered a phased retirement program and I am now in the market to acquire a policy. I am going to make use of Policy Genius in doing so. Policy Genius was built to modernize the life insurance industry. Their technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from top companies like AIG and Prudential in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find the life insurance policies that start at just $17 a month for $500,000 of coverage. And Policy Genius has licensed agents who can help you find options that offer coverage in as little as a week and avoid unnecessary medical exams. They're not incentivized to recommend one insurer over another, so you can trust their guidance. There are no added fees, and your personal information is private. No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Your loved ones deserve a financial safety net. You deserve a smarter way to find and buy it. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com. Well, I think the, uh, uh, you, you mentioned ACTA, I mentioned ACTA. This is the American Council of Trustees and Alumni where John was honored, where there was a gala where we recently attended in Washington, D.C. Well, I also attended the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. This is a completely different kind of organization. Classical liberal, they're, they're trying to bring, uh, you know, free market type ideas and classical liberal ideas and, you know, uh, uh, a worship, worshipful respect for the founding of the country and the in the Enlightenment, and, you know, it's, it's John Locke and Adam Smith and Federalist Papers and, you know, and whatnot. And they want library and preserving these books and ideas and seeing the kids are taught these things and whatnot. And I was honored there as Professor of the Year. They had some kind of, you know, long short of it was. Uh, it was not about me being Black and it was not about uh, uh, touching culture war bases. It was about it was about ideas and whatnot. And I think this free speech stuff and uh, you know, it was core curriculum. I mean, Roosevelt Montaz was one of the uh, other uh, persons offering tribute on your behalf, as was Steven Pinker, and due uh, appreciation of your significant uh, intellectual contributions as a as a linguist. Uh, so th there was a kind of uh, high mindedness, which and it uh, wasn't political partisanship. Uh, maybe yeah. certain people had to remain on names whose initials are MM wouldn't have appreciated as much. <laughs> <laughs> no, he wouldn't have, but we're not going to say who that is. No, and so, not. yeah. Um, <laughs> well, the first, the person, well, we can say it. It's Myron Magnet, but the, the audience isn't going to completely understand why we mentioned him, but oh well. Yeah. But yeah, um, all sorts of things. Or another, now people are going to think I'm trying to compete with you. I'm not. It's just that I'm showing how much things have changed. I'm um I'm with Penn lately. Um, oh, the, the writers the, the, the thing. The, yeah, and I'm I'm on a committee right now oh, where I am. You know, I'm reading you know various books that I would not ordinarily read in preparation to nominate for a prize. And I have to keep it quiet. But there's a committee. It's me and two other people, and the two other people are people I look up to massively. They are just 
some mainstream writers for the for top publications. They are just people. So it's not that I was balkanized into reading black novels or, or something like that. It's not that some conservative organization wanted me to read things from Regnery Press. It's just mainstream. I'm just, you know, one of the gang. That would not have happened 10 years ago that I would have been thought of for something like that. It's fun. But there's a change in the air. The idea that you and I are these reprobate right-wing assholes is now held by an ever smaller crowd of mostly recreational haters. And that means that we're making, we're making a difference. And I'm glad. I like it because it's hard work, as you know. Okay, I want to turn into a kind of self-reflective uh, examination, you and I, because we're talking about how things have changed for us and, you know, and how we received. This started out with the memoir uh, kind of uh, back and forth, and now we're on to this. And I wanted to mention the conversation I had with Shelby Steele, Robert Woodson, and Camille Foster. We had a debate, a kind of debate, moderated by Rahan Salam at the Manhattan Institute, which will be a future episode of The Glenn Show and due course, uh, on the question, the ethics of racial identification. And the reason I'm raising this now is you think of yourself as a black man, and not only as a black man, not simply as a black man. You don't like, you hate, in fact, being seen only or mainly as a black man when looked upon by others, since you are not only and mainly a black man, but you are a black man. These are your people. You do care. And, and it is a, part of your sense of self. Yeah, it, of it's a it part is. of your identity. It's your narrative. It's it's in a sense you your story, um, and uh, you wouldn't be doing what you're doing. You'd be doing something for sure, but it wouldn't be quite this mm -mm. if it weren't for the fact that you are a black American, and so on. And, and that was the question on the table. Camille Foster, as you know, is a race abolitionist. Uh, he's a young entrepreneur and podcaster. The Fifth Column podcast, which is a Substack, is uh, uh, one of his uh, one of his vehicles. Oh, that's a Substack too. Boy, yeah. they they vacuum it up, don't they? Yeah. Well, yeah, Substack is to be reckoned with, and I'm glad to be with them. It's a wonderful platform, and more power to them. And we'll talk about that on another occasion when I am interviewed by Haim McKenzie. I mean Hamish Hamish McKenzie, who is one of the co-founders of the Substack platform. And, uh, and listen and I, to me as if I wasn't writing for them. And also my linguistics podcast is on Substack. I'm not dissing, you are. but I'm amazed at their stretch. Yeah. Anyway, so we had this conversation in which that was a question. The question was whether or not to think of oneself as a black intellectual, to use the phraseology like my people in reference to African-Americans, uh, to I quote unquote identify as a black uh, person was an ethically defensible stand. And um, Camille is of the view that it is not, uh, that it is to fall uh, prey to an illusion. It's a kind of essentialism. It makes something of race when race is not a thing of which there is rightly anything to be made. Uh, he he uh, worships at the shrine of Barbara and Karen Fields and their book, Racecraft. Uh, which, in a word, likens belief in race to belief in witches. There are no witches. Witchcraft is clearly a fanciful thing. Likewise, there are no races. And racecraft, which is the 
occupation of a person like you and me, if indeed we are the black guys at blackheads.tv or whatever, we're black, we're very self-consciously black. It's the occupation of a guy like Robert Woodson, who runs the National Center for Neighborhood Enterprise until it becomes renamed the Woodson Center. But it is a center for neighborhood enterprise, and those neighborhoods are most often black, and the vehicles of the enterprise are most often racially self-conscious entities, you know, churches or social organizations of one kind, or the charter school advocates or homeschoolers or whatever. You know, there's a religion and a racial dimension to it, so whatever. Uh, and and Shelby Steele, uh, who was the uh, fourth participant in this conversation, who has, you know, as you know, the content of our character, this classic book of his from 1990, and uh, much work that has uh, has followed is a, a very passionate and uh, eloquent uh, exponent of the view that the race talk of our politics is a shell game and it's a power move and it and it's it's there's some dishonesty there's a fundamental corruption to it uh, i remember that essay of his from harper's back in like 1987 or something uh, i'm i'm black you're white who's innocent this was a and maybe it was earlier than that but it, this was where the content of our character kind of gets is a, that the backstory of content yeah. of our character he, I must admit, I he, did not know that. He had a couple of cover story type essays in Harper's. And the first of, hmm. of them starts off with him at a cocktail party. It's perfect John McWhorter. It's very McWhorter-esque, or maybe McWhorter is very Steele-esque in this respect. He said, I'm when at a cocktail anarchy. party. Somebody comes up to me, and this is their conversation. And then this thing ensues, and I'm the black guy. And he wants me to know that he's not a racist. And he's trying to, you know, and, the, and, the, and there's this psychological thing that goes on between us. And I'm trying to sip my drink and look at how his bow tie is fitting him. And, you know, it was, it was, you know, uh, it, it was uh, very clever and, and very powerful. And, and the idea was that white people don't want to be thought of as racist and black people want to be thought of as competent. <laughs> and y'all, and, and we have struck this dishonest bargain in which the black person bestows upon the white person uh, a, a dispensation of uh, exoneration, and the white person agrees not to ask whether or not the black person can actually perform. Uh, 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 agrees to, you know, do an Ibram X. Kendi. You know, uh, and that's the bargain, and it's a corrupt bargain, uh, says Steele. Of course, he's elaborated this into a, a much broader kind of, I think, practical social philosophy uh, position, and that film he made with his son, uh, What Killed Michael Brown, uh, I think is kind of a culmination of that, really. But, you know, I mean, he's, he's definitely got his finger on something. So he's against Ray. I'm, I'm going on too long about this. I'm sorry. You're very patient. You're, you're, thank you. I'm taking this in. Um, he and Camille are kind of against race. And me and Woodson are kind of for race. But now, not for race in the sense in which the race card players are for race. The, one, the ones that, the, you know, the Al Sharptons of the world may rest in happiness because he's not dead. I don't wish him ill. I don't wish him ill. That was a, a slip of the tongue. May he live long and prosper. That's what I wanted to say about Al Sharpton. <laughs> but I mean, he's a race hustler. I think that's really pretty clear. <laughs> not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, let's not do that. Uh, and, and what? What am I saying? Bob Woodson and I were defending the necessity and legitimacy of grounding one's uh, sense of self and def 
partly shaping one's work, life's work, in terms of I'm a black man, I'm I'm a black identity, I identify. And uh, Shelby and and uh, Camille were arguing against that. Raihan Salam, the uh, president of the Manhattan Institute, uh, thank you for your time, Raihan, uh, moderated this debate. So people, please stay tuned because this is going to be interesting. But that's what, and I kind of want to put that question to you, John, because is there a contradiction? On the one hand, you don't want to be thought of as a black. You don't want them to have to go to the black section of the bookstore to find your book or to entertain these uh, asinine kind of co- uh, cocktail party conversations where people are kind of, you know, oh, I have a chance to talk to this black guy about this stuff, you know, uh, whatever. You don't want that. On the other hand, you want to define your, your life's work in part in terms of saving the intellectual integrity and the social uh, health of your people. I completely get this business of getting past race, but I don't see how it can happen now. And that's, that sounds so cliched. Hold on, go slow. But there is too deep a sense of difference among most black people. There is too deep a sense of difference among most white people. There is a such thing as black culture, which is part of most black people, and it is not synonymous by any means with less educated white culture. It is also, there is also educated black culture, but there's a such thing as black culture. Black people have different norms of attention and interest in many ways than other people, just like Chinese people, just like Latino people. And these are fluid categories, but the idea that because a category is fluid, isn't, it isn't worth talking about is a rather modern illusion, and it's kind of fake in itself. To say we shouldn't think about race at all when we have not only those perceptions, but those often profound cultural differences strikes me at this point <clears throat> as antithetical to getting most American human beings to understand what we're talking about. I think we can get past race once we get past certain other things. And so let's have to speak carefully. <laughs> there are I will get past race, for example, when I do not see certain black people allowed to bring less than their white equivalents would have to, to a discussion where whites allow them to get away with what is more semaphore than reasoning because they are black, for example. Once that stops happening and white people can get past seeing us as so different and frankly as so much lower, I would be more inclined to get past race. Once there are probably more hybrid people for whom racial identity simply cannot be as cut and dried as many people would like it to be because they're both things. Call that, I'm going to sound like Sandra Day O'Connor on affirmative action. Call it another generation, maybe, where there's so very many. But at this point, I can't see that argument that we're all just homo sapiens getting much traction. There are too many people, and I do hate to say that in this case, I'm thinking mostly of brown people, who would be so offended by that idea because all they can hear in it, I'm sorry, folks, but all they can hear in it 
is someone liking whiteness better. And you just run across that tripwire. And once a certain person thinks that, they, they, they'll never hear you again. I just can't, I can't risk that now. And so I get where Camille is coming from. I respect it completely. He's probably right in the long term. But here in 2022, if that's just, we cannot have a constructive race debate yet in stressing that. And that's hard. I need to grapple with this more. But yeah, we do need to get past race, but we can't do it now. Not with the way most people think. It's hard. It's really... I, I, I think... I think you're probably wrong. <laughs> I hope, although, although in a way. it was your, it was kind of your position that I was that I was defending with Bob Woodson in that debate. I mean, I was saying short run, long run. I was saying in the long run, just like European ethnic uh, identity differences faded with intermarriage and assimilation through the course of the 20th century, so that being Irish or Italian Catholic or Jewish didn't mean the same kind of modular distinction and differentiation in 20, 2000, as it meant in 1900. Likewise, in 2100, blackness will not have the same kind of siloed, uh, one-drop rule, uh, um, insulated, uh, distinct uh, identity. The lines will get blurred, the lines will get blurred. I think that's the long run. I, 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 I agree about that. But I think it's going to come quicker than you might imagine. That's where I perhaps would, would take issue. You say it's locked in and people, you can't see them getting out. And I agree, but they're going to die. I mean, okay, not they're going to die in 25 or 30 or 50 years, not in 100 years. But the margins, the, the for example, what did we do with these Nigerian immigrants? All over the Ivy League. I don't know, a big chunk. You, you, you cited the statistic, didn't you, of the so-called black students at the most elite universities are of either West African or, or Caribbean, uh, you know, second generation immigrant. But they tend uh, to take on black American ideology, though. And I don't mean extremely, but they don't feel like their parents. Oh. So the identity, you know, what is blackness? So that it's kind of it's it's influx and it's it's kind of uh, unstable. I mean, Obama is not a descendant of slaves. I mean, he's black. I mean, so blackness, the meaning of blackness, it's kind of getting, I, I, I was going to say hollowed out, but that's putting it too strongly. I don't mean to say that it, it is evaporating, but I mean to say that it's, it's flexible and it's boundaries. And intermarriage, I mean, mixed race, so-called mixed race kids. I got kids. There was this one kid in one of my uh, lecture courses who I saw recently, um, my students love me. They want to take me to dinner and everything, even though we're not in the class anymore because they just want to stay in contact with Professor Lowry, which is wonderful because I love them and I want to stay in contact with them. And, uh, you know, he's a light brown skinned kid or a dark light skinned kid or what I got the, the hell. And he told me he was he was a person of color. And I didn't you know, I've been with him for a whole year and I didn't know that he was a person of color. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I didn't know. I thought he might be a swarthy, uh, you know. Forgive me, so you know, forgive swarthy, me. you know, uh, white person. Uh, you know, I mean, and mm -hmm. and it just exposes how, you know, Thomas Chatterton Williams has got to be right. Doesn't everybody have to read uh, uh, Self Portrait in Black and White? Doesn't everybody have to read the book and think about the, uh, think about the um, the deep. Uh, a subtle kind of 
exposure of the relativity of it all. Because this is all a kind of socially achieved, agreed upon set of categories that I think are under a lot of pressure. The other thing I'd say is there are more Latino, Latinx, Hispanic uh, people than there are Blacks. By far, I mean, it's like, you know, uh, 18, 20% of the population or something like that. I mean, compared to Blacks, like 12% of the population, depending on where you are in the country, it's more than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are a part of this people of color coalition too. In, in a way, it's like these uh, race mongers are hoist on their own petard. They invent a set of arguments about non-whiteness. It's, this is basically about non-whiteness. And then they look up and A, the non-white Asians are tearing the doors off the hinges at the most elite academic establishments. And the non-white Hispanics are beating you to the ballot box and having a greater degree of political sway. They act, now the Asians don't act in the name of uh, disadvantage and exclusion, they do not, but this identitarian sensibility that's been created based upon, you know, what do you do with this, the Voting Rights Act when you, when you uh, get away from Mississippi circa 1958 and you, and you get to America in 2023? So uh, here, here I'll, I'll, I'll just put it. The African-American case is exceptional, both in terms of its anchor at the core of American national identity, the Civil War, and in terms of the socioeconomic political dynamic that has produced today's uh, exclusion and marginality. That's a product of slavery and of Jim Crow and of migration and of all these things and of racism and reactions. It's, it's the African-American case is unique. Blacks are not white, but a lot of not white people are not black. Mm -hmm. If you design your institutions of law and politics and culture around the moral imperative of the African-American case, but then apply it to everybody who's not white, you've made a huge monumental historical error. <clears throat> yes. We have reached a point where the real issue is that there is a Black American ideology cherished especially by journalists and academics and artists where for Black people and Black people alone, there's always a certain shoe that hasn't dropped. There's a beef. It's fundamental to the identity that there's a beef. And while that beef is going on, we can't be expected to be subjected to truly serious competition. And everything that we do has to be seen through a different lens than you would see it with pretty much anybody else. That's the, that's the bargain, talk about Shelby Steele. And yeah, I think it's um, fraying. And you know, there's a canary in the coal mine that we have never talked about, and we should probably revisit it. You know something is wrong. You know that to an extent, the seams are really beginning to show in terms of the portrait of blackness as this tragedy, you know, just to be, you know, this color means that you're laboring under this burden. And if you don't understand that, it, it means that you're too dumb to see it. But then again, look at these people who are pretending to be black. If it were really as bad as everybody says, <laughs> there'd be no thing as this Rachel Dolezal, yeah. you know, who's this white woman who walks around truly having fashioned her sense of identity. She really 
you know, identifies as black, including creating oppression, creating episodes of racism so that she can, you know, walk around complaining about things that happened to her. And then my favorite example, I mean, I really, I almost wish somebody would do a movie about her. Jessica Krug, she didn't get quite as much publicity as Rachel Dolezal. Jessica Krug was outed a few years ago. She, um, she's a, a white Jewish girl who grew up in Kansas City, um, upper middle class to affluent, Krug, who decided to, after she graduated from college to fashion herself First, as some vaguely African black person, you know, so, you know, Algerian, so that that skin color can make some sort of sense. And then she decides she's an Afro-Latina. And, you know, she's wearing big earrings and loud clothes and pretending that she grew up in the Bronx to a drug-addicted prostitute mother. And oh, there's God. a video of her at some political rally in the Bronx using a New Yorkian accent and pretending that, you know, she grew up among her brothers and sisters in the Bronx. And this person was a professor at either Georgetown or American University. Um, I haven't had enough coffee, but she was a tenured professor, wrote serious award-winning books, one in particular. And finally, some of her colleagues began to sense that she was not this Afro-Latina person because the whole story doesn't make any sense. She actually claimed, she claimed that at immigration, in some way, they misinterpreted Cruz as Krug. They thought Cruz, you know, some Latino person says Cruz, and somebody wrote down Krug as if it's 125 years ago and it's some tough Jewish name or something. And so it's not Krug, it's Cruz. And she actually walks around calling herself Jessica Cruz. Well, wow. gradually, and I can't believe it took so long, wow. colleagues figured out that she's a white girl from Kansas City, especially because now all you have to do is look online. There are pictures of her in yearbooks with her family. That is profound, so, man. Canceled herself completely. And you know, she had, you know, blog posts where she was discriminated against at conference hotels where they thought she was the help, et cetera. You know, none of that happened. There would not be people like her. There's a little list at this point of Rachel Dolezal's and Jessica Krug's. There wouldn't be people like that 50 years ago because being black really was a problem. Nowadays, things have changed so much that you have these people like on Seinfeld, there's somebody who pretends to be Jewish for the jokes. You have these people who are pretending to be black for the fake oppression. And that shows that something is really changing, that a certain kind of white person decides to be us. Because if it were really such a pain to walk around as a black person, nobody would choose that. That's they, Those people are new, and that's only over about the past 10 years. Canaries is what I think of them as. We'll see more. Now you're making me think about Philip Roth, Human Stain. You're making me think about uh, Black No More. Isn't that, uh, uh, who's that? Uh, the, the ancient one? Yeah. The, yeah. Um, Black intellectual is, is that? Uh, yeah. The, you don't mean the, the white guy who, who went around as black? No, that's black in, like me. Isn't that black like black me? Black like me. Yes. Yeah. And then yes, there's a black no more, which one of the black uh, writers of the mid, early mid 20th century, uh, you know, mm -hmm. kind of social critic. Uh, I can't think of his name. I'm blocking his name right now. But in, anyway, mm -hmm. yeah, there are a lot of these. Okay, so how do I, and about passing, about like imitation of life, you know, about mm -hmm. um, once you have the category, then you have uh, people who play at this boundary crossing thing they envision and then they want to be, you know, and <laughs> if I liken it to transgenderism, somebody's going to get mad at me, so I won't do that. <laughs> but I'm it's saying, I'm saying, quiet. whereas... The biological basis of racial differentiation is much less solid. 
fuck because they are boundaries, obviously, and there's interracial and there's whatever. The biological differences between men and women are rather more profound, a person might say. And then, as I say, there'll be an argument and people will get mad at me. So I'm not going there. We're not talking about that. Uh, but we are talking about passing, getting on the other side of the line and envisioning, you know, this, this imaginary life that you live and, you know, constructing a biography. I mean, and there's something so fraudulent about that. Including but, that you have intimate relationships and you're lying all the time. Yeah. Do you yeah. not see it with respect to class? Are there not people who try to disguise their uh, relatively prosperous origins and paint themselves, politicians, for example, as if they actually had a tough time. They worked with their hands. They know what it is to be hungry. They, you know, this, this kind you of thing. You emphasize that sort of thing. Yeah, it's part of identifying with your people and frankly, with a certain kind of white person who likes to hear you tell that story. Yeah, there is there is some of that. Is there I not something of- immoral about appropriating the uh, suffering of, of people that you haven't actually yourself experienced and yet presenting yourself as if you have experienced it? so as to draw to yourself what credit and sympathy would have been coming to them who had actually experienced it? You know, mm-hmm. isn't there something like corrupt about that and, and, and exploitative about that, that that should cause us to have a, to look askance? The, the reality of it is easy to overlook when you feel like you're making a valuable statement to the world about oppression. If a woman you, who claims to have been a rape victim and has a, a narrative about her having been raped who was never raped? It's different with black people. Remember, it's different with us because our whole identity is based on being the losers, being the ones who are owed something. So, yeah, you, you mentioned that woman issue. And, yes, that's horrible. Our skin crawls at the idea of anybody pretending to have been raped in that way. But when it comes to a black person pretending to have grown up poor... The idea is not ideal, a little phony, but at least black people get to hear about black poverty. And at least you signal to your people that you sympathize with people who grew up poor. I mean, that, there's that whole routine with a lot of rappers, frankly, to bring up something antique, where there's this um, competition. You know, how, how real are you? You know, did you grow up in the hood? Did you do any gang banging? Did you sell any drugs? And, you know, there, there was a lot of phoniness about that. But the idea was that you know, you're sacrificing truth for something larger about giving a message to the world through your art. And so, yeah, we're not held to his highest standard. I don't like it. That's exactly what what's wrong with this sort of thing. You couldn't imagine it with any other group of people with any other demographic, but for black people, it's always different. And, you know, to, to live under that is to feel condescended to if you pull the camera back a little bit. And I think that's what both of us try to do. Uh, I see a connection between what we're talking about right now and the earlier conversation uh, here about uh, memoir writing and self-honesty and whatnot. Because I think everybody is going to be confronted with the temptation to uh, put a cover story that prettifies what happens in their lives in place of the real story in which they are culpable and their failures are, you know, their own. Uh, And I I think, you know... uh, for example, the claim that you're a victim of discrimination in an organization where you haven't you know, worked out and fit in very well and you're black and to then seize upon your blackness as you know, you're a victim, they, they, they never liked me, they never accepted me or whatever, when in fact what went on was you just didn't measure up. You, know, you didn't work hard enough, you, 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 didn't, you didn't make the grade. Uh, but the temptation is to, or you know, you're a criminal. 
you, you, you do some heinous act and now you're being punished for it. And, you know, and the account is, and it's very easy to wrap yourself in the umbrella of victimhood, you know, mass incarceration, anti-racist, you know, rhetoric and whatever. When in fact, it was just your craven, malicious, self-regarding uh, immorality. And, 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 and your heinous act that got you, it got you in the box, you know, I mean. Did you see this week that the guy who ran the the van yes. into the white crowd in Waukesha and he sat in court basically going I saw going some exactly of the court stuff, man. Don't, I don't even. Yeah. And, you know, remember, we're supposed to think, well, a white version of him would have done Darryl that. This is Daryl Brooks. Excuse me for interrupting. This is, in mm-hmm. case people want to look it up, this is Daryl Brooks and he was being tried for, uh, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, running a SUV into a Christmas parade, killing six people and mangling many others. Mm-hmm. And he's in the courtroom getting defensive a lot. Now, you might think, would a white guy have done the same thing in the courtroom? Picture a white guy with three names from probably the Deep South. Would he have done the same thing? And to be honest, Glenn, I don't read about such things. I think there was a racialized aspect to the way he conducted himself in that room. He Now, he may just have some mental issues also, but notice what how it comes out. He was his he own attorney. Like- I just want to give the audience the facts. I mean, he's he was his own attorney in a legal proceeding where he was trying to quit convicted. I think the jury was out for six or eight hours or something like that uh, of all these counts. And uh, he and represented he himself like being- and it was on court TV or whatever. There was, you could find it online uh, where he's arguing with the judge and he's making all kinds of representations. He's prancing around the courtroom, spouting all kinds of rhetoric and to say that he might be mentally ill is a perfectly fine uh, surmise on my part based on what I saw. But uh, he's fueled by some kind of ideology, some kind of uh, black, you know, crazy black uh, aggrievement ideology. And uh, it was a it was a performance. Would you have seen a white guy doing it? You say a ultra right wing uh, Nazi type. Right. I, I don't see why not. But would we have uh, read about it or heard about it? Probably not. But I really was surprised at his his notion, his taking umbrage at being looked at askance, his taking umbrage at being presumed guilty in any sense, despite the starkness of this act. He didn't like that he wasn't being respected. That's, I hate to say it, but there's a black thingness oh, about that. I agree with you 100%. No. Why are we the only people saying this? I mean, maybe they're saying it someplace else. Maybe Fox News is saying it. Maybe Tucker Carlson has said this. I don't know. This dude did a fucking heinously, maliciously vicious thing. Mm. He's a monster. He drove a vehicle into a parade crowd and he mowed people down intentionally because of their race. And we the only people to say this? What's wrong here? Mm. Now, here's my point. Let me just make this point, John. Because people are not saying it doesn't mean people are not thinking it. Yes. A lot of people saw Daryl Brooks's performance in that courtroom and they know what he did and they know he's black and they know why he did it and they know who he did it to. They're going to vote. You, you are playing with fire when you start lying and gaslighting the American people about some of these issues. That dude was a monster, a racially motivated, vicious criminal killer for whom there should be no sympathy whatsoever, except insofar as we might allow that his mental illness drove him to do something horrible. I shouldn't have to be the only person saying this. 
This is not a political of, statement. This is not a political statement. Yeah. It's a moral statement. And yeah. if you play this game of uh, picking and choosing when you're going to apply morality, you're going to look up and there will be no morality at all. You will have nothing to appeal to. Sorry, I'm when sorry, remember, Jesus. No, you're, you're right. Remember John Muhammad? The oh, yeah, the, sh- the sniper, sniper. The sniper, I remember. And his son. John Lee. It, wasn't, it was a... Was it his son or was oh, it I a don't friend? know. I don't know. I remember his son, John, but I could have it wrong. John Lee Malvo, who is still in jail. Muhammad oh, yeah, okay. Sniper. That's a different case. Remember with that one that John Muhammad did the same thing. I, I'm pretty sure he represented himself. And he was in court bridling that he wasn't being given the proper respect, that he was being presumed guilty and being treated as a psychopath. That same thing, where there's this idea that someone like that has that is being black and having a certain politics, maybe, means that we have to see him differently. That's the sort of thing that makes it impossible for me to say we have to get past race. When it's felt so deeply that people like John Muhammad and, what's his name? Daryl um, Brooks. Daryl Brooks, because of their skin color, think of themselves as much less culpable for hideous acts that they indisputably performed. It's hard to say, let's all just, you know, think of ourselves as homo sapiens. There's too much bullshit. We, we have too much bullshit to cut through. So, yeah, these are examples of why I can't go with Camille despite fully respecting what he's saying. And I know some people might say, and I'd be very interested to know, how often is it that white criminals who are so obviously guilty in the courtroom parade around resentful that they're being treated as reprehensible people. If that's something that happens frequently, I'd like to know, just like I asked, did a white person die like George Floyd and I was told about Tony Timpa? In this case, you know, because I'm not a criminologist, is that a white thing too? And if it is a white thing too, then I eat crow. I beg your pardon. But I openly admit that my guess is that that is more common among black defendants. And I wish I didn't have to say it, but that is my supposition. I'd be interested to see what we're going to hear. Yeah, uh, so will I. So will I. John, I think we've put, done our duty here uh, today, unless there's something else that you feel like uh, you really must talk about at this moment. I think that's it, and I'm hungry. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, John McWhorter, Glenn Lowry, uh, we're at the Glenn Show, uh, and this has been another uh, episode. Always a pleasure to talk to you, John, and uh, we'll sign Always off. Glenn.